Have you guys ever dipped yourselves in honey and gone and rolled around in an anthill? It's one of the most erotic experiences you can have. (laughs) Oh shit, are we recording? Uh, Welcome to the pod people, the show where we definitely don't dip ourselves in honey and go roll around in anthills. I'm your non-sticky ant-covered host, Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm joined by two other non-sticky ant-covered boys, Ben Sheets... I'm uh, an undead combat vet. And Eugene Lundin. I'm here to find virgins. <laughs> <laughs> the year is 1974, and today we're going to be talking about a selection of films from 1974 that we picked basically at random. But before we do, it's time for a little trailer breakdown. Yeah, instead of some news, it was kind of a slow news week. Uh, we watched three trailers uh, for movies coming out soon, uh, and we're going to kind of discuss a little bit. So we watched the trailer for uh, The New Predator coming out. Which we did make predictions for uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, I totally missed the release date. Did you see when it's coming out? This year? This year! (laughs) The Predator is directed by uh, Shane Black, who most recently did The Nice Guys. He hasn't done anything since then, has he? Nope. Nice Guys, Iron Man 3, the legendary Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah. Um, He was actually in the original Predator. Oh, yes, that's right. He's one of the soldiers, right? Yeah. Oh, really? He also wrote it, so... That's very um. cool. So yeah, he's, he seems very intimate with it, and I, I really like uh, a lot of his movies. Nice Guys and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang are both just like I, I think really funny. He's a fantastic writer. Movies. Yeah, I love Shane Black. I thought The Nice Guys was great. Super hey, underrated. I even liked Iron Man three. And I, I liked Iron Man too, three actually. too. Actually, I think oh, it's hey, underrated. Awesome. I think it's a really <laughs> smartly written movie. Iron Man three gets a lot of flack. A lot of people say that it's the worst Iron Man, but. Yeah. I just hate the Mandarin fake out, which I actually I I thought it was so clever. I thought that was fine. And so I I don't remember my predictions, but I I hope that I I made them high. I think we all I think we all predicted that this will do fairly well. Um, And it seems I mean from the At least critically. Yeah. From the beginning, uh it's it's going to be very like tongue in cheek, very goofy. Like Yeah, so the the trailer starts out with this kid playing with like he finds this box full of a bunch of Predator gear. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why that's just maybe like... Maybe he's Arnold's son. Maybe he's Danny uh, Glover's son. Because <laughs> you know, he was in Predator 2. Yeah, he, he finds, I guess, this little pod which controls a, a Predator ship. And he's just, he's playing with it like a toy. Smashing it into block towers. <laughs> and then it cuts to the Predator ship like banging into mountains <laughs> and crashing into trees and shit, which I thought is very funny. And I really hope that this movie is campy because Shane Black does camp really well and the first Predator was really campy. And even Predators that came out in, what, like 2010 yeah. or something, 2009? Yeah, I thought yeah. I thought that movie was, uh, was a whole lot of fun. I really yeah, enjoyed that, that movie great. too. I The one thing I'm worried about a little bit is it going too campy because I think even Predators, as well as the original Predator, still maintain an element of tension in them. Oh, for sure. Well, you can do you can do camp and tension simultaneously. They're, they're campy, but 
the the characters aren't always in on the joke, you know? No. It's, it's not really self-aware. I think well, that's the key difference. And at least based on the trailer, it doesn't seem like that's the approach. Yeah. I, I hope so, at least. I mean, the trailer doesn't show a whole lot. I guess just... we're getting evolving Predator Yeah, they're, they're hybridizing, which, I mean, are they just banging people? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I mean, they get down with a whole bunch of different species, and I'm sure it must get lonely, the life of a predator. <laughs> so, just sexual predator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a film by Shane Black. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised that there was actually some blood in this trailer. You don't usually see blood in yeah. non in non red band trailers, but I mean, I, I would expect a predator movie to be very gory. Yeah, I'm guessing like that's the only footage they could use. Probably. I mean, the predator as a concept is kind of campy, just like a big dreadlocked alien with all of these really ridiculous over the top weapons. From the trailer, it seemed like they were going into like a city, much like Predator which reminded, Two. Reminded me of Predator Two, which yeah, I actually Predator in the am hood. not a big <laughs> fan of. Oh, I like Predator Two. It's, it's really okay. it's, it's dumb, but I mean, I, I love Danny. Glover. I haven't seen yeah, that Danny movie Glover's in years. Great. I don't even. Danny remember. Glover carries that movie. But I don't think it hits the level of, like, Predator, or even no. Predators. I, well, I don't know if I would agree with that, but I do agree that it doesn't reach the same heights as Predator. But overall, I have good expectations for this movie. As long as it's fun, I don't mind if it's a little bit stupid. I agree. The way this could fail is uh, to look at something like uh, Alien vs. Predator Requiem, Oof. where... It tried to do silly things, but without the self-awareness, so it just comes off very Man, awkward. The Alien vs. Predator movies are so grim, dark, and obnoxious. Yes, right. Like, and even with this, I kind of like the first Alien vs. Predator movie. Well, you're, you're wrong. It's a little overly serious, but it hits campy points. When's time. the last time you saw it? Uh, 2014, 2015? That's around the last time I saw it, too, and I did not like it. It scared Requiem, me when I was little. Requiem bad we'll agree to disagree on that well and the big difference between the new one and those are paul ws anderson is not directing <laughs> yes, this yes one. that's right thank god let's uh talk about the next trailer yeah so next trailer we got was a movie called why are you forgetting the name Dan? climax climax yes the new gaspar no film. um yep it's a dance horror movie i didn't get much from that trailer it was mostly just a lot of quick cutting of a dance party with a sangria sangria yeah it looked like a sangria ad and uh disco music and uh les vinyls yeah les vinyls (laughs) there's a little bit of blood and somebody was on fire for a second but other than that i could not tell anything but if i know gaspar no there's gonna be lots of unsimulated sex (laughs) that's great because i have not seen any of his movies i've only uh, like caught uh, little clips uh, from other people watching it. You haven't so, seen Enter the Void? No, I've not. I remember uh, you guys were watching it one day, and the one scene I saw, it was near the end where it's like, it's sperm basically floating through. Oh my uh, god. Into the I, I love Enter the Void, but the love hotel scene at the end is unnecessary and indulgent. Enter the Void is like, 
an almost three-hour movie that could easily be, like, under two hours. Or right around two hours. I agree. There's about an hour that you could cut out. I mean, the last 30 minutes is that fucking love hotel scene, pretty much, which is just... Yeah, and I didn't see love... Uh, I heard it was good, but it's like uh, nymphomaniac, just like several hours of unsimulated sex. And it's like, if I want to watch unsimulated sex, you just watch porn, you know? <laughs> like, I, I don't understand that fascination with like being edgy and a- having people actually have sex in in a real movie it's, like, it's I, artsy you're I mean, you're trying to capture something not seen before even if it's just it's like hyper stylistic too i just the, feel the, i just the feel the bad cinematographer for the actors. that did uh, spring breakers did love apparently as well yes that's true and he is one of my favorite cinematographers which makes me want to watch it but at the same time i'm not jumping to I it. wouldn't just based on the trailer for climax I wouldn't be surprised if he also shot that movie no, it looked, I wouldn't it looked very similar lots of sort of like oversaturated neon and like dark grimy hallways and shit that's kind of uh Gaspar knows M.O. Yes, true. And I've, yeah. I've never seen Irreversible. I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it just because of the the 10-minute rape scene. Yeah, like, I, I watched it a few years back, but I fast-forwarded through the rape scene. I think I probably would, It's too. excessive. You're not missing out on anything not seeing it. Well, right. it's just a fucking static shot of, of rape going on. For, like, ten like, solid minutes, it's right? Gratuitous. Yeah, it's gratuitous. It's, it's excessive. It seems like Gaspar Noe's movies are uh, movies that would be hard to watch with your parents. <laughs> oh, <gonna> yeah. <laughs> well, hard to hard to watch with anybody, honestly. But, yeah. you, that Gaspar, seems very, yeah. <laughs> Gaspar Noe's middle name is actually Edgelord. Um, I, I watched his first movie, the one he did before Irreversible. I think it's called I Stand Alone. Like that Godsmack song? Yeah, exactly. Ah! Stand alone! (laughs) It's about this, like, loner who, like, hates people. He's like a butcher who uh, sells horse meat. And which is technically illegal in France. <laughs> the, the horse meat black market. Yeah. The high demand for illegal well, horse meat. Well, it just pretends meat. it's other meat, essentially. Why would anybody want to eat horse meat? I mean, it's probably cheap. So yeah, Climax is going to be a, a thing. We'll, yeah, it, we'll... it's going to be a Climax. It's of... it's pr- it will probably be good because Gaspar knows a good filmmaker, but it will probably be extremely uncomfortable. It's gonna to be watch. a climax of sexual proportions. All right. Well, <laughs> why don't we talk about our last trailer now? All right. So uh, the last trailer we watched uh, and we're covering is. The trailer for the first purge that's coming out on the 4th of July. Because America. Fuck So, essentially, this movie is all about, you know, when they first started doing the purge. Which is a story that I never wanted, honestly. I think one of the interesting things about the purge universe, and the only purge movie I legitimately enjoy is the second one, Anarchy. But I've always found it interesting that it just exists in a universe where this purge happens once a year, 
and they always talk about the new founding fathers, but they don't explain that shit. And now they're going back and having a whole movie explaining that shit. Yeah. Um, it looks it looks dumb. I know that you are a little bit fonder of the Purge movies than I am. Yeah, well, I I like the second one a lot. Um the third one was dumb, but it was better than the first. I don't know if I agree with um, that. The first kind of falls too much into cliche trappings of the slasher genre. Yeah, the first one feels a and lot the dialogue like a, is like awful. a stranger's knockoff. Yeah. I'm cautiously looking forward to this one. I think it's going to be bad, but it, maybe it'll be entertaining. You know, I I think that the problem with the Purge movies for me is that sort of like how we were talking about with Veronica, it's like a lot of it is just cool set pieces that they have designed, and then they sort of tried half-heartedly to build a story around it, which they don't really succeed in doing, because, like, at least the last two, it's mostly just going from one location to the next where people in scary masks try to kill them. What are some cool things we can show? Well, uh, let's put a bunch of lights on a car. Yeah, let's cover a car in Christmas lights. No, I, I agree that that's a big problem with them. The other big problem I have is they fall into the trapping of if you have a purge, automatically everyone is homicidal. Right. You know, there would be a lot more white collar crime than anything. People like embezzling money and stealing money. Yeah, <laughs> that just at the, you know? just the assumption that if nothing is illegal for a night that everybody's just going to go out and start killing anybody they can find. I mean, I guess this new one is going to kind of delve into that we see in the trailer. Yeah, I like how they played with that from the gate in the trailer, how they showed just everyone partying right off the bat. Right, and then the the government are like, oh, well, this needs to be successful, so we're going to send out soldiers dressed as civilians to kill people. Right. Which is Who very are... stupid, especially since they're not at they're, all yeah, just right, exactly. soldiers. <laughs> not even close. Civilians. <laughs> like, yeah. they're coming in on, like, jeeps and shit, and they're just, like, they're all deploying with assault rifles. They have and... fucking tactical gear. They don't yeah, look right. like civilians. <laughs> hey, where did those civilians get all that tack gear? <laughs> hey, but this is, this is America, so I'm sure that you could find many of people who aren't military that have that same exact getup. Yeah, I'm just their own urban warriors. I'm just worried that in Trump's America, this new Purge movie is going to be extremely preachy. Oh yeah, absolutely. All of the Purge movies have had a veneer of like political thought, but it has always been really shallow. Well, yeah, and it's super ham-fisted. It's like the government is bad did you know that the government is bad the government doesn't care if you die because the government's bad well that's it's like okay well explore that more please the second one because it's more like rich people are bad (laughs) right you know and then in the third one it's the government is bad again yeah well, um, yeah, I guess I guess there's an escalation. In the first one, it's just like, people are bad. Then rich people are bad. Then the government is bad. And now the government is really bad. All right, well, I guess uh, we will see what these movies are like when they come out. Uh, check out the trailers for yourself. Uh, hit us up on social media and let us know what you think of these movies and some of your expectations. But now, let's get into... 
our discussion of the films of 1974. I was honestly uh, really surprised by the ones we ended up choosing. Cause yeah, same. I had not heard of any of these. I know you guys have, like, you, you had seen, like, at least one of these other movies Well, Ben before. had seen Phase 4, and I had seen Death Dream, but yeah. none of us had seen Blood for Dracula. And honestly, like, 1974 was a banger of a year for horror movies. Yeah. Like, Black Christmas and uh, Texas, Texas Chainsaw are, like, two of my favorite horror movies of all time. I was kind of expecting a low bar for some of these movies that we watched and was overall pleasantly surprised. Let's start with the first one we watched, which was uh, Blood of Dracula, presented by Andy Warhol. Yeah, so Blood for Dracula is, uh, uh, I guess you could call it like a New York art house take on... Yeah, well, hey, it's Andy Warhol, The so. classic <laughs> horror movie. Well, it's directed by John Morrissey. Paul Morrissey. Paul Morrissey, Morrissey. Who's yeah. a, he, he was a, a frequent collaborator with Andy Warhol. I think he directed also like whatever, you know, like big cult trilogy Andy Warhol did um, before... All of that. So they've they've worked together a lot. Apparently, this was also made around the same time that uh, Frankenstein movie was being made. Yeah. Too. Um, well, the year before they had put out a movie called Flesh for Frankenstein, which is their take on the Frankenstein story, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen that um, either. I've heard pretty good things about that one too. I think the concept of Blood for Dracula is really interesting. It's like a modernized take on the Dracula story in which Dracula, who is dying, is trying to find the blood of a virgin in the age of, like sexual liberation it's not, where, vir- it's not virgin it's a virgin 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 <laughs> i must have that virgin blood because yeah, uh the actor who plays dracula i guess i've i udo re- kier yes udo yeah. kier who uh i had not realized he was in uh lars venture's melancholia um but he was just one of those um big b-movie actors he's a he's a time. legendary character actor at this point and to be perfectly honest i I would go as far as to say he's about the only good thing about this movie. <laughs> I, I, as much praise as I have for this year, I was pretty underwhelmed by by this movie in general. Well, it's a, it's trying to have a, a grander, artsier message than just Dracula, you know, hunting for virgins. Uh, he sort of represents like the wealthy upper class. It's a class. And, it's a class struggle. Yes, movie. right, yeah. because. The um the wealthy family he ends up encountering that um they're they're sort of uh in the dumps, they're losing money and they want to try and marry off their daughters just to sort of make connections. Into wealth. And, yes, yeah. right. And fucking uh the father is played by famous oh, director right. Vittorio De Sica. Who did uh like bicycle thieves and uh a, a master Umberto of, D of the uh Italian new wave of the fifties and the, 60s the whole neorealist yeah the neorealism by 
Desico's great. His character is really funny in this movie too because he's like weirdly obsessed with the phonetics of Dracula's name. <laughs> yeah, right. He just, he just keeps t- sound. He keeps talking about how much he likes the sound of the name Dracula. Drac- Dracula. Dracula. He keeps seeing it over and over. It has three syllables, <laughs> <laughs> and like how it's a, a sign of of like good upbringing or whatever. Because Dracula travels with his uh, manservant to Italy. Because uh, he thinks that in such a staunchly Catholic country, he'll find lots and lots of (laughs) of virgins. Right, like the church just produces virgins just uh, like like on some sort of manufacturing line. He's like, everyone there's going to be virgins. Come on, you can find everything you need. Yeah, he has like a, Dracula has like a butler. The chemistry between those two I thought was really funny in the movie. Yeah, apparently they're also like... Uh, Udo Kier plays uh, Frankenstein in Flesh of Frankenstein, and that his his butler in Dracula also plays uh, Igor in that. Oh, so interesting! That's funny. They seem to they have a lot have of like a Ren and Stimpy like uh, <laughs> chemistry, which I really dug. I thought that was uh, pretty funny. How like the butler was there for his every need, but uh, Dracula would just like bitch at him and Dracula Dracula is in this movie is such a like whiny emo teenager kind of character and I love it it's so funny I think it's such a an interesting shift from your classic Dracula portrayal where he's like super imposing and, and evil, scary yeah. And right, well, he's handsome. either right, yeah. He's either suave and menacing, or the flip side is just where he's absolutely monstrous and just like gross to look at, like in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu yeah, or even the right, original, right? Just like that. They but really this do a, this okay. kind of hits the middle, just like he's just kind of old and sad. Yeah, they do <laughs> a, a great whim. job of. Uh, setting him up as kind of a pathetic character. The He's first so thing whiny. we see in the movie is him like putting on a bunch of makeup and like painting his hair black. <laughs> yeah, right, just taking like a big fat old paintbrush. <laughs> paintbrush. <laughs> um, just, so he doesn't look so old and decrepit. It's like he he has Udo Kier in this movie has like two extremes. He's either moping or he's pitching a temper tantrum and they're and they're both hilarious yeah. like i'm sure you know uh wealthy people do you know they, just, they don't get what they want they you know they throw a fit and he wants margins but apparently udo kier lost like 20 pounds in a week before they started shooting in a week, in a week he was oh he was so Damn. when they started filming he was like so frail and sickly that he could like barely walk Jeez, well, he's Works in a... Works well for the movie. Right. He <laughs> well, yeah, he does have a wheelchair. <laughs> right, so maybe that was just like, they had to work that into the script because he actually needed it. And but... I think I think that stuff worked well for me. Where where the movie loses me is in the, the subplot of this uh, super Marxist's like servant, not a, not a servant, but like uh, like farmhand, like he's a farmhand who he, works he for the family. He's he's the working class that is being uh, abused by the upper class, the wealth, played by 
uh, Joe D'Alessandro, who I guess was a big like uh, figure just like in the New York underground scene, well, a, a big collaborator with the, A. Warhol. The funny, the funny thing is, is like most of these actors and actresses are like foreign yes, and very and thick accents, like yeah. accents that hard like, to understand sometimes. The accents so thick that you question whether they actually speak English <laughs> right. at all, yeah. or if they're just memorizing English lines. Yes. But Joe, but then Joe D'Alessandro. <laughs> just talks like a dude from Brooklyn. He <laughs> has a thick Brooklyn accent. It's like, yeah, thing. everyone else up until this point has those, yeah, thick European accents, and then he walks into frame, he's like, hey, what are you girls doing out here? Because <laughs> the, um, the the girls, the, the daughters of the family are also... They're, they're sexual deviants. They're incestuous lesbians. Incestuous lesbians, yes, as, that's right. As it's described Yeah. Who also movie. use... Uh, Mario is... is, is um, Joe is, D'Alessandro's yes. character. Uh, he is used... Um, well, he is used and he also uses them... As uh, for for sex and things of that nature, he is he is the foil to da- Dracula, but I can't say that he's actually much better than Dracula. <laughs> oh my god, he's fucking despicable! Like if they're <laughs> yeah. trying if they're trying to make a statement about uh, like class struggles, like the the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat or whatever, Mario is awful. Right? It's yeah. kinda... he's, he's like abusive at one point after having sex with the the two sisters he asks them what their 14 year old sister is up to he's like i oh. could sure go to rape the hell out of yeah. her right now oh my god it's yes, like what and rape he does and rape he does oh, like oh, 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 oh my god right because this might be jumping ahead too much i don't know if we want to give spoilers away for that's this, fine uh, we don't have to go too yeah. deep into the plot <laughs> but that um mario realizes this at a certain point that he's a vamp i don't know how he figures out because Dracula brings his coffin with him. Oh, and yes. Yeah, he opens up the coffin and sees Which he like first padded. establishes as, like, holding his, his like, dead father. The remains of, like, a, an uncle or something right, right. that he's traveling with. Which is it's just, like, a strange cover. But, <laughs> hey, you gotta get your coffin in somehow. When he realizes that he's uh, he's been desiring uh, vor- virgins... Virgins! Uh, he tells the, the, the 14-year-old girl, he's like, how about I... Uh, Take that virginity. Oh yeah, he's like, he's like, he's like, why don't you think about uh, losing that virginity? <laughs> and and so he he rapes her, so Dracula can't turn her into a vampire. Yeah, this which movie is, is uh, it's very very confusing, but it's trying to, I guess, make a statement in some way that the wealthy bourgeoisie, you know, they're they're awful, but you know, the, the nobody's class, nobody's good in this. Yeah, exactly. That everyone's Chappelle bad. joke about Cosby, where he's like. Uh, he rapes, but he saves. <laughs> but, but he rapes more than he saves. Oh my god! That's Mario, all right. Uh, yeah. I god. mean, honestly, like nobody is really the good guy in this movie. But I would say that Dracula is the most sympathetic character because he's literally just trying to survive. Right. Even he has he he literally sucks the blood out of people. He is well. Yeah. I mean, he's a vampire, relatable. but he's he's just trying to not die you know yeah well it's funny he it, throughout the movie the whole conceit is you know he goes through these four daughters one by one 
trying to court them. Trying to figure out yeah. who is, is a virgin. Yeah, and he, uh, he sucks the first two and immediately just oh, yeah. vomits out all of their blood. Well, the first time his his face turns green, they do that weird effect where like his face glows bright green. Yeah, and then which for, like, I a thought good, was hilarious. For a good two minutes, he's just gagging in this bathroom. It seemed like he was actually puking. It's too. so It's so over the top. I would say... A good chunk of this movie, Udo Kier is just writhing around on the floor, like my favorite up one blood. was where he was in the bed, just like convulsing. Oh yes, wildly. before he because he's he's craving the blood, and yeah, it's just it's it just it's, it's you know it's focused on him, just like the camera hovering above the bed as he's shaking violently because he hasn't had anything. <laughs> I would say like this movie is not very long. What is it like? It was like an hour and twenty something minutes. No, it was like the longest one we watched it was like an was hour it? 45 oh okay well i i think that you could probably cut 15 minutes out of it just by trimming certain shots down well, well that's the, the thing out of the three movies we watched it was by far the longest but it should have been the shortest it should have been <laughs> like back back to what i was saying doesn't work for me it's just like there's so many scenes where Mario and these two sisters are just having really nasty conversations about, like, Marxism and, like, sexual liberation where Mario is just being a total fucking shithead. Sometimes these conversations are happening while they're having sex. You better be careful. That Russian revolution. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they took all the money from the rich people. So and all one, you got is your looks. And at one point, bitch. he's he's like, he's like, Dracula's here looking for virgins. What the hell does he want with you two whores? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it just goes on for so long, and it's so boring, and I don't care. And the sex scenes are all really weird and long. It gave me... A lot of this movie gave me hardcore, like, the room vibes. Especially with those extended the sex scenes. scenes. The extended sex scenes. They were missing a, a killer soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's true. The room really kills it with sex scene music overlaid. <laughs> and uh, we get we get an extended Roman Polanski cameo oh, God, in right. this. Because I guess he was he was filming one of his movies nearby at the time. Well, his movie was actually also a vampire movie. Oh, really? Um, yeah, the one that he was shooting. Oh, so what was it? it? Uh, fuck if I know. I just, <laughs> okay, right. I read that, uh, but interesting. Yeah, uh, what is the name of the movie that he was shooting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the question. What? What? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. What's it called? <laughs> it, yeah, it's called what. <laughs> That's what we yeah, want to know. Yeah, that's my question. <laughs> Third base. And apparently, he wears the same mustache in both movies. Oh, nice. Hack. 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 That's yeah. his only issue. <laughs> yeah. The only problem he did Roman, Roman Polanski. Justice League, where like, they had to like fake put CG out of yeah. uh, Henry Cavill's mustache. And he shows up in such a... It's such a segue in the movie. It doesn't... Uh, it's not relevant to anything. Dracula's servant is down in the, the bar, because I guess Dracula can also eat vegetables. Um, yeah, he just can't... He just can't He's just eat. disgusted by He can them. only eat virgin meat. Right. <laughs> and, and vegetables. And Roman Polanski's there playing some weird bar game that I don't get. It's like you have to imitate his movements, but how do you win? 
Like, how do you how do you beat imitating his movements? I don't get it. Yeah, but. it goes on for a really long time. It's super weird. Roman Polanski plays this game with Dracula's manservant. But then uh, some woman runs into the bar and screams that a... 13-year-old, uh, well, that a young girl had been hit by a car, and of course, Roman Polanski runs as fast as he can over to uh, wherever a 13-year-old girl is, but Dracula's servant grabs a loaf of bread and just, like, in a very elaborate, like, speech he gives, like, he pretends He explains every into- single step of what he did. <laughs> it's like... Oh my god. I thought it was really funny though. He like dived onto this corpse pretending to fall. And let let the virgin blood soak into the bread and then he takes it back to Dracula. It's like, if there are people there, they probably still saw you pick up that bread loaf. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You know, he explained it one way, but like to an outside observer watching that, it was probably the weirdest thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... There's just so much fat that could be trimmed out of this movie. Like, for a movie called Blood for Dracula, I feel like Dracula is not a big enough part of this movie. Unfortunately not. No, they spend much more time with Mario, I think. Yeah, and he's and he's not a relatable character. He's a total fucking <laughs> Which scumbag. Uh, I, I, it seems he's not intended to, like, be relatable, but that just doesn't make for very interesting, like, but scenes. Then he, but then he becomes the hero at the end. Yeah, in a in a very in a, that's when it should be called Blood of Dracula because he starts bleeding out like crazy. That scene is very funny. Yeah, when uh, Mario confronts Dracula and he has he has an axe. Yeah, I believe and so. and he just starts chasing Dracula around this big mansion and cutting off his limbs one yeah, by one, like Monty <laughs> Python style. Hey, and the first time it happens because there aren't really it's not. A super effect-heavy movie or anything. It's not very bloody, no. I, I I can't recall any other moments where there was anything, like, in the, the way of, like, The only other graphic and... scenes were him puking blood. Yes, right. right. <laughs> but, uh... In uh, in in that moment, like when Mario swings the axe, there's like the the fake arm falls off and it starts squirting Squirt. out like a hose on the wall, and it's a uh, it, it it certainly is a nice little like jolt of energy because this is like the last five minutes of the movie at this point, so just really going all out. But. Yeah, and the the funny thing is, is this movie came out only a year before Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh. And oh, I, I almost I almost wonder if the the Black Knight scene in the Holy Grail some is, sort of is some is a reference to to this part in Blood of Dracula because the the resemblance is uncanny is, is uncanny. Yeah, right. <laughs> he he just he's chasing Dracula around, cutting off his limbs one at a time until he's literally just a torso <laughs> lying on the ground. And then he drives a stake through his heart and kills him. And then he gets the 14-year-old girl who he just raped 10 minutes prior. Yes, yes. But not before one of the... Because the, the uh, older sisters, they had uh, non-virgin blood when Dracula bit them. They became, like, just, like, uh, subdued sexual... Uh, just uh, they, they remained incestuous lesbians, but <laughs> they were just, like, under... His spell in some way, and one of them, because uh, well, no, it's, it's the it's the oldest sister. Oh, it's the oldest who, sister that who I guess was actually a virgin, because they make right. a point that she never married, and that if 
a vampire drinks a virgin's blood that they become a full-fledged vampire and she does sort of like throw herself on him at the end right. and she has she, she has the fangs and she falls directly onto <laughs> she the... falls directly onto the stake <laughs> and then mario walks off with his 14-year-old girlfriend now i guess yeah and then the movie just ends cuz at that point i think everyone else in the family has died the the mother gets shot by Dracula's servant. Dracula's servant gets shot in the head by the mother. I don't remember what happened to the father. I and I oh he left on a trip. He just left. Yeah, he just okay. left. Tzika just, like, just yeah. left. He's yeah. just gonna come back and everyone's oh, gonna be he... dead. <laughs> yeah, he he's gonna be very. Confused. At least Dracula had a good name. <laughs> I don't know who you're supposed to root for in this movie. I mean, do you have to root for anyone? It's, it's, I think it's allegorical. <laughs> that everybody sucks, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It's all bad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. I, this movie did not do a lot for me in the long run. Udo, Udo Kier hamming it up, it makes for some very funny scenes, but not enough to justify the hour and 45 minutes it takes to watch this movie, I think. I would say it'd be better to just, like, find find some clips of, of Udo Kier being real hammy and that ending where he just gets all of his limbs cut off. Right. I didn't have as much of a problem with this movie as you guys did, I think. I thought the Mario character was kind of funny just because his thick Brooklyn accent was so different than everyone else. Right, and I don't have I don't have a, a real issue with him being unsympathetic. I think it makes him a more... Uh, uh, just a, a more interesting character to see on screen. Uh, I, I think just like all of the um, the the bigger themes they were trying to go for didn't didn't land with with me, and it just um, it didn't provide for uh, a lot of very interesting moments yeah. outside of what Udo Kier was doing because well, he of, was he was good. None of the daughters are particularly good actresses. That yeah no I think that's a big problem too. It yeah. just seems like the acting is uh. Is, uh, especially with their accents, too. Sometimes it's hard to even understand well, yeah, what they're I'm saying. Well, yeah, I'm sure one of them was French. Like, most of them sounded Italian, but there's that one girl, I think she was the oldest one. I'm already forgetting shit about this movie. I think that's oh, right. Lot. Yeah, I, um, I think so. But uh, one of them had like a French accent, which I thought was really weird. It's a yeah. If if Mario, the Italian farmhand, can sound like he just came from the the Bronx, then <laughs> at that point Andy Warhol didn't care that much. I'm sure. And it's interesting because I guess this was this is like in Criterion. Um, yeah, it was one of the first releases. I think it's. Like, uh, 16 or 17. I'm gonna posit something that is sort of in the vein of people liking movies because they're in different languages. I'm gonna say that I think the reason this movie is so critically acclaimed is because it has Andy Warhol's name attached to it. I don't think it's that great of a movie. Well, and The it's... fact that it's in Criterion is kind of confusing to me. I think Udo Kier gives a great performance, and it's a really original take on Dracula. It and is, I think but... It, uh, that whole New York scene is really important uh, in terms of film history. Sure. So. I, I don't know. Maybe this was better in... It, maybe it made more sense in the era that it came out in the 70s and that time of sort of 
uh, sexual liberation and, you know, it was during the Cold War and right. stuff like that. Maybe it's just it doesn't work in, and I think the, under, uh, through a modern lens. Uh, and just like how Joe D'Alessandro seems so strange to us as a character that the fact he he became sort of like a like a cult sex symbol because he was in like flesh and and heat and he um he i'm sure he represented something completely different than what we get from it now and um just the context of the other movies Andy Warhol made at that time just like how he made Flesh of Frankenstein and it seems like a lot like Joe Delessandro's in that as well so it seems there's a lot of overlap between those two productions and so he was on some sort of role Andy Warhol but yeah uh, I guess yeah, so. and I think it just it makes it um, it makes it a little more ineffective uh, in this day and age yeah I, I I feel like it it just hasn't aged super well it's it's really Still a lot of really cool things yeah I mean it's it's an interesting concept and and like we've been saying, Udo Kier is is really good. Uh, although I don't know if I would say his performance is so much good as it is just very funny and how over the top it is. I think it's genuinely good. He he pulls a very campy performance, but there is a lot. I of mean, I do buy it. Skill, I, it. yeah. I'll, I no, I, he, I can agree. He with does that. do a good job portraying Dracula as a very pathetic character yeah and you know honestly the the puking scene seemed real like i wouldn't be surprised if he was like legitimately throwing up a little bit could be should we should we write this unless you guys have anything else you want to talk about no i'm fine jumping into ratings let's jump in okay um yeah i i think that it's it's a very fun movie at times mostly with udo kier and the ending is great and I mean, I don't like Mario, but Joe D'Alessandro's performance is, I guess, noteworthy in just how sort of despicable he is. Ultimately, I find a lot of the movie very boring. Most of the acting is not great, and there's just some really baffling things that happen in it that don't make sense from a narrative standpoint. Uh, I think I'm going to give this a two and a half out of five pods. All right, uh, yeah, for a movie called Blood for Dracula, I feel like there wasn't quite enough blood or Dracula in it. But I think Udo Kier gives a fantastic performance. I think it's a really original take on the Dracula idea instead of, you know, an imposing, scary Dracula. It's kind of a weak, frail, pathetic, whiny bitch Dracula, which I like, uh... I thought uh, the whole class struggle in that was kind of interesting, too, how, you know, he was just kind of a rich boy who got everything he wanted, especially with his uh, butler getting uh, what he wanted and what he needed. I agree, it drags a little bit in the middle. The uh, the sisters, or the daughters, their performances aren't very good. The Mario character was interesting in how baffling his character is and how uh, unapologetic he is. And I thought uh, DeSica did a really good performance, too. It was weirdly sincere in a really funny way. Um, It's not a perfect movie, but I don't think it's a bad movie either. If anything, I would watch it for the last 15 minutes and all of Udo Kier's performance. I would probably give this a 3 out of 5. I think I'd give it a 3 as well. I think there are a lot of things that people could get out of this that I did not get. Maybe people would appreciate the 
the, the sort of underlying themes more than I did. And uh, they might um, find it much more entertaining than how I felt it dragged in a lot of times. But there's still a lot of really good things in it that um, overall left me with a, with a good impression. I don't know a lot about Andy Warhol or Paul Morrissey and their, their collaborations together, but it's, it's made me interested in all that. So I, I'd say that's an accomplishment in itself. So, yeah, a three out of five for me. Okay. Well, that will give Blood for Dracula an average rating of 2.8 pods out of five. And now we're going to move on to our next film, Phase 4. And I don't know about you guys, but this is the one that took me the most by surprise. Oh, yeah. I had seen I, this before, so I knew what I was getting into, but I didn't remember liking it as much as I did this time. I Yeah, I, like, based on the premise of, like, ants forming a collective conscious and consciousness and, like, attacking some scientists in the desert, I was expecting, like super campy b-movie fun schlock and i think this film is much more intelligent than that it does some really interesting experimental narrative stuff that really 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 took me by surprise yeah well this was directed by saul base who is a legendary graphic designer he did you know, most of the, the Hitchcock posters and title sequences, you know, for Psycho, Vertigo, yeah. uh, North by Northwest. Wow. Um, he's a legendary title producer, too. He even did uh, later movies like Goodfellas. He did the title sequence for that movie. Oh, wow. A lot no of big way. movies he's done and a lot of big posters, but... He's very influential in the graphic design space, a really important figure, especially in the 60s and 70s. Um, But this was his only film that he ever did, um, which I find really interesting because it's his first and only one. And it's really solid for being a first foray yeah. into film. Well, like, for first right off the bat, the whole movie looks pretty freaking cool. The, I mean, the, the story itself, I, I don't remember if it was like there was like a meteor or something or just like... It's, like, it's very <clears throat> loosely explained. There's some sort of cosmic event. I Based on the first couple of shots, I imagined it to be some sort of like planetary alignment or something but they don't really explain what it is but all of a sudden these colonies of ants in the desert become like super smart and this there's all of these just super magnified shots of all these ants and it looks awesome and i'm i'm pretty sure that they're real ants. I don't oh, think they're they absolutely went there. And, and that's ants. like yeah. super fucking cool that they were able to get this much footage. It's of a all ton. Yeah. Like I was already blown away just by like the opening sequence of like these ants like forming their tunnels and stuff and like following a single ant as it's like going throughout the hive and like meeting the queen and stuff. It's so much. And I was like, Whoa, that's really fucking cool. And then like a good majority of the movie is that stuff. This really kind of, uh, surreal alien esque. Yeah. And they could have gone the way of, uh, movies like them, 
where they make them giant. I was expecting them, them to be giant. I, I thought, yeah. yeah, that they would absolutely do that because I thought, how are you going to make just like 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 they're, like little tiny ants interesting? But they there's do just it. so much. There's yeah. so much detail put into just um, that that hive mind mentality they have with yeah. the queen operating it all and how they're all just like little cells of a giant a giant bigger body. And from there, it just it it kept me interested all the way through from yeah, that point yeah. on. And there's, like, they're building, like, these weird, uh, like, towers and pylons oh, yeah, which, and like, stuff. just very, very cool, just, like, striking visuals outside yeah, of Yeah, once again, Salt Base brings a great sense of design to those, too. Yeah, like, it's, it reminded me very much of, like, the, like, the monoliths in 2001, like, that, the kind of, like, stark geometric... Yeah, very shapes, angular. Very angular, but it's like there's something very alien about it. Yeah, well, the, the, the first ones we see where they're just, like, really tall statues with, like, mouths things. Yeah, that's a, really cool. they, like, tilt back at the top and they have, like, these openings. And then later on when they surround the, the research installation with these, like pyramid-like things that are super shiny on one side so that, like, the sun is, like... Right, they're assaulting the base. With, yeah, uh, with, with like, like a magnifying glass, right, kind yeah, of, like, using the sun reflecting off of all of these installations to, like, cook the base, I mean, which I think is really... <laughs> which I think is, a, is really smart to have the ants using that kind of warfare when little kids always will, like, cook ants under a magnifying glass you, you know, using <laughs> right. the sun, and it's now they're kind of, like, doing the same thing. I feel like movies like this uh, are made by screenwriters or directors that just, uh, yeah, like they, they, they squashed one too many ants when they were kids and they just grew up thinking like, God, what if they wanted revenge? <laughs> right. And, and is which there. is why I was thinking this was going to be super schlocky and it's really not. No, no, no honestly, it it's one of the most seriously. intelligent, like sci-fi horror movies I've seen. I think so too. I can definitely agree with that. Which might, it might be to its detriment at some points in the middle because it uh it uh it slows down and it it wants to it's not trying to keep providing all these these crazy set pieces but uh it might not be as uh as as grabbing as as some of the it, earlier stuff it, well i will i will agree that it does get extremely dry at points and a lot of the parts where the scientists are sort of trying to figure out what step to take next. There's two scientists. There's the one who's sort of your, like, stereotypical mad scientist who's so obsessed with... Right, he's the one who, who's, who's been, like, really following this ant thing going on. And right. the other scientist is just sort of brought along because he... He knows a lot about animal communication. Right. He was figuring out ways to, like, communicate with, like, whales or something yeah, like right, that. Yeah. And so he gets brought along to try to find ways to communicate with these it's, ants, which I thought... It's almost like, uh, like a rival, in a way, like, uh, about trying to bit. communicate with yeah. something and, the like, the basis of communication, because they have these, uh, like, wave detectors that are, um, like, focusing in on the ants, like, little chirps and squeaks so they can figure out what commands they're like being ordered to do like go and stop and yeah it definitely gave me a rival vibes it also kind of reminded me of annihilation 
Uh, like the in, end in, for sure. It, the end especially, yeah, for sure. especially you know, like in comparison to uh, Annihilation, though, I feel like these scientists definitely feel like scientists. They feel more like hard scientists. science right. throughout a yeah. lot of the movie, which I think is really cool. I think the fact that you know, like. It does get dry, but the fact that scientists are actually doing science is right. kind of... I mean, yeah, they're they're scientists, and they're using science to solve their problems. Yeah. You know, which I, which I think is cool. I, I do think, even though you're using science as, a, as like, a, a vehicle for, like, problem solving, I do think that, like, some of the science stuff starts to go a little bit above the average viewer's head and that's where it starts to get a little bit dry there were that's that's what it did for me at least they start getting like really technical with some of their explanations and then i just sort of would like drift off you know like i I enjoyed that though i mean i think they did a lot of cool things with the science yeah for sure um well the way they were the the ways they were communicating yeah and Um, using like communicating with the ants through like uh like geometric Those, detector things uh, right? shapes and stuff like that and some of the some of the scenes that they did uh in that part was were really cool like when we see a single ant uh in their like computer like trying to gnaw through the oh, wires yeah, right. and there's a praying mantis <clears throat> that had escaped from uh from like its cage earlier. Yes, which and, there are there are two things that I really hate more than anything else. I hate close up images of bugs and I hate footage of bugs eating other bugs. And this movie delivers on both of those. Yeah. <laughs> and an incredibly un uh, like just uncomfortable, which I, I'm, I know a, a lot of people probably don't like bugs, so... Well, right, just... because they're super weird, and yeah. the way they move and stuff <laughs> is very uncomfortable. And I was thinking, because but... they have uh, shots of, of the Queen, of course, and I was thinking, just like with... Uh, I mean, it was giving me just like super flashbacks to like aliens, just uh, yeah. the, 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 the alien queen um, releasing all the eggs. And I thought, God, why, why, why do we need aliens to think of anything horrifying like this? We already got these on Earth. They're just tiny. Well, I mean, yeah. you, you, look at a lot of, you look at a lot of science fiction, whether it's in books, movies, video games, and a lot of aliens are... Just basically like, bugs right you know, yeah. because it's like they're like bugs or if you're looking at like lovecraft they're like deep sea creatures yeah because it's like the those are like the most horrifying bizarre unlike us things there are on the planet so right it's like, yeah we, you have to have some sort of context you know well i think this movie does something kind of rare where it takes something that would normally not be imposing or scary and it turns it on its head in a yeah. way that makes it imposing and scary. There's a great sense of dread throughout this whole movie that I love. They go to a nearby like farmhouse where yeah. a, a family is living. Uh, the family had already set up like a mode of gasoline around their house to protect them from the ants. Right. But the the scientists basically tell them you have to leave immediately. Like. These ants are going to fuck up your life. Right. But then they don't leave. Yeah, they don't leave quite fast enough is the problem. And they end up and getting their lives fucked up by the ants. Yeah, the, the ants find a way to light the gasoline on fire, if I remember correctly. No, I think that they start seeping in and they They attack the, the horse mode. first. Right. The ants yeah, attack the yeah, horse. Yeah, yeah. They swarm the horse 
and bite it to death and then they attack the the farmhouse and they manage to get into their truck and make it almost all the way to the research installation and then end up getting killed well no i guess they're they get out and they try to go into the installation and the scientists like release this new chemical that they've been working on to kill the ants and it just like coats everything right. poison yeah, spray it's, it's poison like a spray. thick yellow pesticide poison, poison pudding <laughs> yeah poison pudding I thought it was really cool it was like grimy and it yeah. had like chunks in it and well stuff. what what I thought was super cool was after that because it does work on the ants at first and then we get that scene of one of the ants like carrying a piece of like the solidified poison back to the queen and it keeps well and the the ant keeps dying and then another one will come along and bring it back some right. of the way and then dies and then another one until it gets to the queen and then the queen eats a little piece and she lays uh, a yellow egg and then we see that she's like introduced the poison into like their DNA, right, so, so now they're, they're <laughs> so now they're immune to it, and now that like when they bite, it's like poisonous. So I thought that was a really yeah. Cool they do idea. a really cool. They do a really good job with hyper evolution. Yeah, movie. like every threat to their survival is met with some sort of solution, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, the girl of the family survives. Yeah, the granddaughter survives, and she hides in, like, this, a cellar or something yeah. from the poison spray, and they bring her into the the research facility. And, of course, the the one guy wants to, you know, call for an evac to get them out of there, and then the, the one super driven scientist is like, no, we can't do that. He's been bitten... And his arm just keeps like swelling. Yeah, it keeps up getting bigger the movie. and bigger, right? <laughs> and uh, and then at a, and then the ants come in and they chew through the some of the electronics and fuck up everything, so well, they're trapped. The thing is, too, like he was bitten because they they had this big like maze for the ants to go through. Like a glass maze, and then the girl comes in and just immediately He's smashes right, yeah, it, great going, letting woman. out all the killer ants. Yeah, which I thought was really funny. The ants are obviously inside of their their base. Yeah, and even outside, they they had set up like reflective obelisks. I guess you yeah, could say, kind of around the whole thing, just shining light and increasing the temperature inside. And well, they, they chew out the, the air conditioning unit so that yep. the temperature is just increasing steadily. But not enough to actually, like, kill them. And they have uh, a respite during the nighttime, of course. And at a certain point, the scientists realize that just like they were trying to study the ants and see what they would do in response to, like, external threats that the ants are now doing the same thing to them. They're, like, putting them in this situation where they're trapped, and every day they're being heated up to uncomfortable levels, and none of their equipment is working. It's like, what are they going to do? So it's like, it does a really good job of reversing the roles of, like, the studier and the one who's being studied. I thought that was a really cool idea. Yeah. I thought that was really cool, too. I I, I think... 
using the idea of a hive mind is really cool in this movie. Yeah, because I it think, does it really well, too. Yeah, I think more than anything, that's what makes the ants scary in this movie is because they work as a collective unit. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why, like, there's there's, like, more ants on this planet than, like, any other, all other species combined or something like that, and, like, why don't they just take over? Well, right, because, yeah. what, because what they're, they want revenge. Because they have, they have super simple rudimentary intelligence, you know, and this movie is like, well, what if they were just as smart as we are, or smarter? Yeah. And it does make these little tiny things that you're so used to just squishing when you see them makes them fucking scary. Yeah, well, and it's easy to buy, too, because it's stupid to think a single ant would have as much, if not more, intelligence than us. But as a hive, right? as a hive mind, it's it's more plausible. I, I just would love to know how they got the ants to do the things they did behind the scenes like when they were filming like how did they guide them how did they get them to do certain things because like the scenes they shoot with the ants like all the macro stuff is really fucking cool and they're doing very specific things and i would love to know how they did that from what i read they they had a specific uh nature photographer that did all of the macro okay, sequences that would make sense ants. it's so, very planet earthy yeah if planet yeah. earth was like an alien movie <laughs> yeah well it, it's weird because it, it bounces between very much planet earthy stuff and uh more abstract stuff like yeah. you get super close-ups of like the eyes of the ants and they're just these weird textures that are like, and they start like rotating. kaleidoscoping yeah. them and stuff. Yeah, they do all this really fantastic, uh, surreal imagery. Should we start getting into the ending because there's definitely some stuff to talk yes, about there, and uh, and the and the lost ending. Yes. Um, at a certain point, they basically just wander off into the desert. The girl goes first. Uh, I guess to try to, she feels guilty about letting the ants loose in the in the research facility. So she kind of like sacrifices herself to distract right. them. Just, just a good way to write her off. <laughs> just say, like, right. Well, right, we, they they we decide, couldn't really do anything with you. So. They decide that the only way to to save themselves is to kill the queen because she's the heart of the hive mind. And that once the queen is dead, then all of the ants will go back to just being ants. And then the other two try to go out into the desert, and the the mad scientist guy uh, falls into a trap that the ants have built. Just like a big pit with all these little tiny holes in the wall, and they just pour out and cover him and bite the shit out of him to death. But then the the last remaining guy finds their, their mound and slides down inside it and when he does there's this really weird scene this is i where i definitely agree with the annihilation uh comparison right. where like the girl sort of like rises up out of this big pile of sand and like goes to embrace him and then we get this voiceover that the ants wanted us all along, so I don't know if they're, like, mind-controlling, like, trying to mind-control the people or something. It's not really explored. They just sort of, like, walk off into the sunset. I think it's less mind-control and more control over... It's assimilation. You know, like, the ants have gone to the top of the food chain, essentially. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, no, that's what I get too, but I'm wondering if, like, the ants are, like, inside of her and, like, pulling her strings, like, literally, if that's, like, how they're doing that, if she's just, like, a, a big old ant sack. Maybe. I, I, I mean, like it's... this this movie is so grounded that uh, that seems a little less likely than the ants having total control over them. But how? But that then that begs the question: How do they exert their control? Uh, I mean, obviously they're the the dominant species now, but how are they controlling? I think that that might be a bit of an issue with the ending itself, and even the last ending. Uh, which the last ending is uh, the last ending could be a short film on its own. Man. Yes, it's it's that same scene, but it is extended for and, like five minutes. Yeah, it becomes this like wild, crazy psychedelic visual fest or feast. You could even yeah, say this that montage just... with all of this weird symbolism with like the sun and they're running around and... on this, which almost felt like very like Hitchcock intro esque, like them running behind, like running across these giant uh, like flat planes and I'm uh, just like in this giant like green screen or whatever it was. That doesn't explain much else either. Oh, no. I mean, if oh, anything, man. it explains it, less. Right. It's, no, it's fantastic. Uh, I, well, originally, Saul Bass had that as the ending. Right. That was the, the original intended ending of well, the Well, because movie. it actually ends with the phase four popping up. Yeah. I don't think it actually shows up yeah. in, the, uh, in the ending we saw. Um, you know, that ending is super abstract, but I think it explains more about what they were trying to do with the ants. Well, I mean, it, it implies in a very abstract way. It implies that the ants take over the earth, yeah, and, essentially, and, and rule mankind. But like you said, an extremely abstract, surreal. Which I think, way. honestly, is the only way to do it in this kind of movie. I I know? agree that it's fantastic. Um, I, I it's super impressive because it's all shot on film, mm-hmm. you know, and like it's all practicals. Well, I mean back in 1974, these. like what else would they shoot on? Well, uh, right. Well, exactly. The but fact but that like, they they still did yeah, it so yeah. well, you know. Yeah. It, the some of the effects looked very modern, especially well, like Well, it's just like the, those kaleidoscopic effects and Again, the Saul based sense of design in the whole ending sequence is incredible. I think any shots of uh, of the ants that were going on, I thought were all uh, were all great. I think those were uh, just like really, they seem really inventive and something that I haven't really seen in yeah. any other movie before. Just how much time it must have taken, as you mentioned, to actually get in there. And shoot these these uh, these bugs. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing is, uh, after is the right? uh, is it before the the movie was uh, released theatrically, uh, the studio came in and cut out the ending because they were like, "This is too experimental and weird." Well, uh, Can't have that shit. honestly, it probably is really weird because uh, for the rest of the movie, I mean, besides the. From, like, the ant's point of view or things like that. There's nothing too, like, too bombastic as, as that lost ending uh, seems to be. So, uh, I'm sure the way they saw it, they're, you know, they're like, what the fuck? We're, we're trying to make a, a Hollywood movie over here. Not yeah, I, I do think the lost ending is really fucking cool. But at the same time, I do see why they cut it. 
just because nothing else in the movie reaches quite that level of surrealism. Yeah, it's I that think peak of escalation. It's that annihilation type of thing where like it hits this climax and like the only way to represent what you're trying to go at is abstract and right. You know, which well, which I, I think is cool and I think it's the right way to do it. And I do prefer the lost ending. It bums me out because the the lost ending has only been shown at screenings. It's never gotten a home video release, the lost ending. And yeah. uh the only way we were able to watch it is there's a bootleg on YouTube. Of somebody actually filming at a screening. Yeah. So you yeah. can find the lost ending and the, the quality is not great which i agree is kind of disappointing because i would love to see that lost ending yeah man I, act, as actually as intended and not from an external camera in a theater i have my fingers crossed that one of these days we'll get a criterion release with like a good transfer i could of that see lost that. ending i could see that um because i honestly I think it's incredible, and uh, I wish it was in the movie because I feel like it would have bumped up my rating of the movie probably by, like, half a star. But, Maybe. Um, I, I would definitely say if you seek this movie out after you've watched it, take the time to go onto YouTube and check out The Lost Ending. It's about uh, five minutes just as Just as, like, a supplement, despite the, the not-great uh, video quality of the, of the recording— it's still very cool. Yeah. And very it's, much it's worth, worth checking, checking out. out. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you guys good to jump into ratings? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Me. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll start off. Uh, I think this movie will surprise you. I mean, for a movie about killer ants, it is not really campy at all. No. It, it plays it very intelligently, follows these scientists around in a really intelligent way. It does get a little dry in the middle um, because it's so focused on the science of stuff. But I think that's kind of refreshing to see, um, especially for a concept that could easily jump into camp territory so easily. All of what they do in this movie is incredible. There's a sense of dread throughout the whole movie with these ants that are inescapable that I think is fantastically done. I really wish The Lost Ending was in the movie because i think it adds a lot to the finale and it wraps things up a little more i guess you could say i hesitate to say cleanly but i think it it definitely gives you more to think about yeah it gives you more to think about and i think it does the ants rule over the world thing the best way possible it sticks the landing much better than the the ending we get but i think as a whole this movie is definitely worth checking out with the lost ending i would give it a four and a half pod but as we watched it uh now i'd probably give it a four out of five well just just for the sake of it let's let's make our ratings uh with the lost okay ending. with the lost ending yeah, let's, let's uh i'd give it a four and a half in that case because because the lost ending can be found it is available on youtube it's not hard to find so four and a half for you ben mm-hmm. all right eugene well for me the uh the lost ending it won't it won't change my my rating i don't think it hurts the film that much but i found it 
Because I already assumed that the next step was for the ants. Just uh, I, I didn't think, you know, their mission just ended with getting those two uh, people. I sort of just assumed it was for, you know, bigger, bigger domination. So the, the, the last ending just feels a bit excessive to me. But the rest of the movie, a lot of really great camera work. Just it, it, it's uh, sci- scientific. And uh, the, it's, it's really great. Uh, I mean, when a movie can be uh, intelligent enough to play with those ideas and for it not to feel um feel misused i, I mean i guess in something even like in uh, blood blood for dracula how the they try to make this bigger statement between these two classes and it just sort of doesn't work it doesn't feel like it's 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 executed right but with this uh this is the idea of the communication and the hive mind i thought all really great stuff i'm gonna give it a four out of five uh the last ending just doesn't do much for me yeah, I I was very very pleasantly surprised with this. This movie takes an extremely uh thoughtful and mature approach to somewhat of a ridiculous concept uh to the the extent that it does not seem like a ridiculous concept by the end of the movie. Uh the sciency stuff can get a little bit dry, but man, some of the surreal imagery and the the way that these ants are are approached from a narrative standpoint. Man, this it's got some fucking nature photography that would make David Attenborough cream his pants, you know? Uh I I really enjoyed this movie a lot. I like the lost ending a lot, and I, I hope to see a criterion release with that ending finally uh put in its proper place. Um I'm gonna also give this a solid four out of five. This is a movie that I hadn't heard of before. And in that in that sense, I feel like it's extremely underrated. Like this is definitely a film that's worth your time, worth checking out. I really wish Saul Bass would have done more movies uh, than just this one. Yeah, I would love to see what he's what more of what he's capable of as a filmmaker, yeah. just based on this alone. He has an incredible sense of design in this movie, and like he put out one of the smartest sci-fi horror movies i think i've ever seen with this yeah i think i can agree with that uh that will give phase four a overall rating of 4.2 pods out of five check that shit out so for our final film of the day we are going to be talking about death dream also known as uh, Dead of Night, directed by Bob Clark, who we have talked about at length on the podcast. As you may remember, he is the director of uh, Black Christmas. Yes, which also came out in nineteen in the same in the same year as this. Which, I would wow. <laughs> I would imagine that. Oh shit! I was going to say I would expect this to have come out early in the year, but it came out in uh, in August of nineteen seventy four. And then Black Christmas was around Christmas time. Although I believe uh, I read that this film was in production in, in 72. So uh, That would make sense because there's a point where they, they specifically reference 1972. Yeah. Which I thought was a little odd. Bob Clark is is uh, is a great director, and uh, it's weird to me that he sort of drifted away from horror after uh, Black Christmas. Because it seems like a lot of his early films were were horror, and then he ended up getting into like a Christmas Story and Porky's 
and the karate dog and baby geniuses. <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed like, uh, from what I've read, like, a lot of the horror movies he made weren't super well received when they came out. Which is a shame. Um, I know he did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things yeah. in 73. And he also did these two. None of them particularly got good critical reception. I think Black Christmas was like the most successful, but even then, I don't think it made yeah. it made like six million or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a shame because much like Black Christmas, I think this movie is fantastic. It's, yeah, I, it's was, a, it's, I was really surprised by this movie. It's a, This is my second time seeing it. Um, I saw it a couple years ago and thought it was, was really great. Uh, it's a, a very loose adaptation of the short story The Monkey's Paw. Um, well, I don't know about you guys. I had to read that in like freshman year of high school. I did not, yeah. so I don't know anything uh, about the story. It's it's good. It, it's like the, this family receives a mysterious like dead monkey's hand and that when they make wishes... Uh, one of the fingers curls. Oh, okay, all right. And... Well, I've I've seen that in pop culture and yeah, things yeah. like that. Well, I mean the the it's basically like the the moral is like be careful what you wish for yeah. because it sends back. Uh, it gives you your wish, but not in the way that you're expecting. Right. That, that nice, ironic uh, genie type of twist. Right. Well, the the I mean, the family, uh, the son dies in a in a horrible accident in a factory, and they wish him back to life, but he comes back as like a horrible shambling monster. Okay. Uh, and, and so and, that's that's the basic inspiration right. for this. It's really changed for for the movie. They they do a couple different things with the yeah a uh it's about a a young soldier who's killed in vietnam who just uh shows up back at home one night and he is uh obviously changed for the worse yes uh they uh he returns the day i believe it's the day that they are given the news that he was. They killed. receive a telegram that he was killed, and he shows up at like four in the morning. Right, and they show the uh, the the mother is up. She's she's constantly talking about the 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 son Andy. Andy, yeah. right? Uh, just always saying like, "Oh, I hope Andy's okay." You know, oh yeah. Um, when Andy comes yeah. home, we're gonna have to do this and this and this. Right, and the 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 father the father and daughter. Uh, are both like visibly uncomfortable because they can tell she's she's just like trying to cope with the fact that he's overseas. So well, when they this, get the at news, at this point, at this point, they haven't received a letter from him in like right. two months or yeah. something like that. So I think the the father and the daughter suspect that he's dead. But yeah, the, the mother just to can't accept with it. it more. Um, or they're they're preparing for bad news yeah. where she's sort of just I love how uh, the the mother and father are John Marley and I can't remember the woman's name uh Lynn Carlin Lynn Carlin uh they were actually in both in faces and playing essentially the same roles <laughs> like uh, a troubled uh husband and wife interesting um, and that came out 72 I think it was much earlier. I think it was really. Like I think yeah. 60s. I think Faces was in the sixties. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So they're essentially reprising their roles from that movie, uh, which I thought was really cool because Faces is one of my favorite movies. Sixty-eight is when um, Faces. Came. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, wow. They're essentially playing the same roles. I mean, even John Marley is 
you know, kind of an alcoholic in faces like Uh he is in this movie. They do a really good job with the mother, you know, not coming to terms with it. When the the soldier comes with the bad news that the son is dead, the mother just can't bear it and insists that it's fake and goes into her room and just uh, kind of wishes her son was alive. Yeah, we get this shot of her sitting in a rocking chair, I guess in his room, uh, holding a candle in the dark, just like whispering, like, you can't be dead. You have to come home. You promised. You promised you would come back. And I guess it's sort of that sort of obsessive wishing that brings him back. That's one of the things I really like about this movie is that it's never explained what brings him back. Whereas it, especially being based on the monkey's paw, it would be super easy for them to have the family meet like some creepy old gypsy who gives them a a magical object. Beware! The curse is real! (laughs) The death dream! But they, they, Bob Clark does not do that. It's just this soldier comes back. Yeah, he, he comes back by hitchhiking with a, with with a trucker, uh, the trucker picks him up, seeing him. He's a soldier on the side of the road, and he says nothing to the trucker. Yeah, he's he's very stoic. Uh, and the trucker's found dead the morning after Andy shows up, and all Andy does is sit upstairs in his room, rocking in his rocking chair, and well, like on the way the we get this great scene where they uh, the trucker stops at the diner. <laughs> oh God, right! <laughs> uh, to get you know a couple coffees for him and the soldier, and there's this very very drunk old man. <laughs> once a, once again, Bob Clark showing insight, I suppose, on true alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but that... it's the charming kind of alcoholism. No, because uh, uh, can I see a menu? <laughs> <laughs> and he he asks the uh, the trucker because um, the trucker mentions that he picks up a soldier, and he's like, "There's cider hours," <laughs> <laughs> and you know, of course, he says hours, and he's like, "Uh." I thought we were being invaded. <laughs> As, oh God, it, 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 it was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just like the um, the sherry drinking house mother in Black Christmas. Bob Clark just loves his uh, his drunk people and the father in this movie as well. He, yeah, everybody's he hits the sauce. A, everybody's like, a drunk. Yeah, <laughs> um, but we we discover partway through the movie that uh, Andy is basically just a corpse and that he needs to uh, inject himself with the blood of others in order to keep himself from uh, like rotting, which I think is a very interesting take on like a zombie. This yeah. is this is basically a zombie flick, honestly. Yeah, uh, a very a very different original zombie flick, not your not your Romero type zombie. Well, who knows? But... Maybe that 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 might be even more original to a zombie than uh, than what Romero did, because I think that was sort of what they were before. There's like undead or like un- unnatural, but not not necessarily uh, like brain dead not not Just, mindless yeah, walking that's corpses. what i love about this movie you know it's like a zombie movie but he's still intelligent you know he's just yeah. not there he just he's just totally know? apathetic and yeah. angry that that segues very nicely into a point that i wanted to make what i think is so cool about this movie is that it's actually a really excellent depiction of ptsd 
before PTSD was even a term. The term post-traumatic stress disorder was coined in the 80s, I believe. I mean, yeah, and but it they was, called it other things back I, I in mean, the 70s. You know, like shell shell shocked and stuff like that, but it wasn't... Combat fatigue. It wasn't studied up until that point. It was after so many people were coming home from Vietnam so irreparably damaged uh, mentally and emotionally that they really started to study that, and then they eventually gave it its name, its proper name. The the zombie thing aside, like, he behaves like somebody with really bad PTSD. Super short temper, vacant stare, you know, just sitting up in his room, rocking back and forth, totally apathetic towards his loved ones, his ex-girlfriend, stuff like that. And I think that that's a really interesting take on PTSD to have him also be like like a zombie. Right. You know, that's, yeah. that's the movie explanation for why he is the way he is. Right. But I mean, really, it's just a, a, a soldier with horrible PTSD. And it shows not just the trauma of the soldier, but of the, the family in a and, way, too. Yeah, exactly. The way how their their lives have just been like twisted around. I mean, first we're thinking he was dead, but now that he's there, but he's he's been like like he's been stripped down that he's not the person they 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 knew before the war. And, and the he mother does a great job giving like a vacant stare too. He has one of the most imposing scary glares that's, I've seen in any movie. That's actually yeah. why he was why he was cast in this role. Bob Richard Clark saw him staring at him from like, across the well, street. He's like, "You're in my movie, you creep." So, up. well no, this is the this is the film debut of this actor, uh Richard Backus. Uh, And originally, Christopher Walken was supposed to play this role. Oh. But then Richard Backus came into a casting call and he gave the what they considered the creepiest vacant stare and they're like Which oh, you mean well, Christopher Walken is... had some weird eyes in those days. Right. But... Yeah. I, I'm very curious what this movie it, would be like with Christopher Walken. I mean, just watch Deer Hunter. It's basically this role. <laughs> yeah, shit. He's uh, a little more that. mature, but uh, same kind of PTSD walk-in that you get in this movie. Right, well, yeah, he... Uh, he gets really uh, aggressive with a neighbor, uh, uh, like a neighbor who makes himself welcome. The, he, it was the mailman. It's the, not the oh neighbor. yeah, it was the, the mailman. mailman. Yeah. He he, because they're having a barbecue, like a little picnic outside. Because you know he's back home, they want to celebrate. He just walks up. And he's like, oh, those egg salad sandwiches. Oh, don't mind if I do. And he just starts like just sitting he's like, there. hey, can I have some of that sweet tea? <laughs> yeah, he just <laughs> makes himself at home, and then he just starts talking about like, oh, you know, you were deployed with this dude. Hey, how's he been doing? Haven't heard from him. Yeah, he's probably fine. (laughs) It it gets it gets um, the soldier really Andy really angry, and he just storms off. But you know, not before giving him just like like that that real imposing death stare onto him. Like you shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Well, then later he he kills the dog. Oh God! Right, and it's oh it's 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 terrible. (laughs) Yeah, because all the, the kids come up to like. Try to talk to Andy finally because he's back. Right, and the little dog keeps barking at him because, you know, dogs can always sense ghosts or when something's wrong in any movie. Yeah. Just have the dog act crazy. And Andy just grabs that dog by the throat and, like, has it lifted up. And it's like, it's just. In front of all these yes, kids. In front too. of all the children. And that's the turning point for the father where he's. He already 
realizes that something's not right with Andy, but... Yeah, because he just spends all his time rocking on that, uh... But that's when the father is like, this is not fucking right. Like, we need to do something about that. Like, he calls the doctor. And the whole time, the mom is just, like, totally choosing to ignore everything weird about Andy because she's just so happy that he's home. Well, does he call the doctor or does he run into him at the bar? Because he well, goes yeah, to the bar. That's, that's right. He goes to the bar and he's getting drunk because Andy killed the dog. And, yeah, that's right. Then he sees the doctor and tells the doctor that Andy's been acting weird. Right, that he that he, he, he had killed the doggy because I guess that was... Uh... That was the that was really the father's dog. He loved that little poocher, and uh, Andy killed it. And so now he's um, all torn up about it. And he has the doctor come over and try to talk to him. And Andy is very withholding; doesn't really want to talk. Right, and, and it's at this point the uh, the murder of the truckers been spreading into town, and they know that it was a soldier, a soldier he picked up. And so the doctor is uh, he's asking him questions like. Did you hitchhike here? What did it do? You remember what his truck looked like? Yeah, like the doctor and the dad both uh, suspect that Andy is the one who, who right. killed the trucker, which we know from the beginning is indeed the case. Um, and then after the doctor leaves, Andy follows him back to his office and and kills him. And takes his blood, stab, well, stabs him to death with a big with a big hypodermic needle, which seems like a very uh, ineffectual. Uh, yeah, he stabs weapon. him multiple times, leaving the tiniest of holes. Right, I, I, I feel think like the, the, the dad does a fantastic job balancing between frustration towards the son and like legitimately caring for him as yeah. a son. Like uh, the the whole reason that. Andy ended up killing the doctor is because the doctor was going to call the cops immediately right. on Andy because he knows what's up. Uh, but the the father told him, just wait until tomorrow. I'll see if I can talk to him about it. And and even after the uh, the doctor's murdered and the father knows about it, he goes to the police and he lies uh, about... Um, the doctor like having another lead to try and throw them off the trail right. for uh, of his son. So even though at this point he knows that his son is the killer and has been murdering people, even murdering his friend, he he wants to try and protect him. He still uh, doesn't think that he's totally uh, unredeemable, right? Yeah. He still wants to try and protect him, or just like the hope that he's still that there's something good inside of him. But uh, it's at this point when he's really started to degrade. Um, yeah, well, let's talk about uh, the makeup effects in this movie. This is actually uh, Tom Savini's first feature film yes, as a makeup uh, artist, the fucking legendary Tom Savini. Right, as you might uh, know from... if. You don't know about his work on Dawn of the Dead, and then you might have recognized him from the movie itself as the the machete-wielding motorcyclist. And he's also been in other films like From Dusk Till Dawn as, um, I forget his his name, Sex Machine or something, but he's got the revolver um, around his crotch. Oh, so. that was Tom Savini. Yep. You're yeah, right. So he, uh, acting as much as he's done makeup, but uh, one of the, the greatest name. makeup artists of, of all time for yes. horror and blood and gore. Absolutely. And I mean, even in such an early film in his career like this, 
you really see the talent that's already there. Yeah, because, I mean, with, with Dawn of the Dead, that whole movie was super low budget, so uh, the the zombies in those movies are basically just, like, purple. That's yeah, their yeah. that's their zombification. Well, with this but, movie, a lot of the effects are withheld until, like, the third Until act. the Right, end, it, yeah. it's so, it's very, very gradual. Well, when, the, we, uh, when he goes after the doctor, we see a little bit of it. His skin just looks kind of, like, papery, like, real dry and wrinkly and then he's fine after he kills the doctor but then at the end when he goes on a double date with his uh his ex-girlfriend and his sister and her boyfriend to the drive-in dressed like he's in a synth pop band (laughs) (laughs) wearing a white turtleneck and sunglasses and black leather gloves because he started to deteriorate at this point and he doesn't want them to see that but man, that's when the shit really, really picks up. He kills his ex-girlfriend in the back seat of the of the car and is like drinking her blood like a vampire and his glasses fall off and he's got these like crazy monster eyes and his skin is all falling apart and shit. And then just there from for like the last fifteen minutes of the movie, like basically every couple of shots he's like more and more degraded until he just looks like like a like a decaying corpse with right. all of his skin falling off, and the, man, the ending gets fucking crazy. Like it's a it's a pretty slow burn of a film up until the last fifteen twenty minutes or so. Right, and then bodies uh, bodies just start piling up when he kills the uh, his ex girlfriend. He manages to get control of the car, and he runs over somebody, and because it's in like in this like drive-in so, theater, yeah. I like it's obviously just a, a dummy, and they show the car like running over the dummy. But I thought like that usually isn't seen in movies because it either might be like too goofy or just too graphic. Because I I like it. It was a real punch for me, like seeing it get like tossed around like under the wheels. Yeah, it was just... no, it's it's crazy. And then the cops start chasing him. And they start shooting the fuck out of him. (laughs) Yeah, well, he goes back to the house, uh, and then the cops start chasing them, and his mom is driving him as he's, like, falling apart. And then the fucking car catches on fire. And that chase scene is great. Just, like, screeching down the roads in this little town (laughs) in Florida with just, like, flames billowing out of the back of the car. Yeah, shit. It's fucking awesome. (laughs) But I I love to, uh, like... There are two cops. One of them says freeze, and uh, Andy stops, and that just gives the other cop an opportunity to shoot him. It's like, freeze, nice, got you right where I want you, and they just immediately fire. One of those cops was Bob Clark himself, Oh yes, that's right. in, a, in a cameo playing one of the cops. Um, he seems to really like his, his cops, because like Black Christmas is almost as much uh, like a detective story than yeah. it is just like a, a home invasion movie well i guess they they used a lot of the same music from black from death dream in yeah a lot of the the dissonant strings and stuff were i thought the the music was great yeah no the music is incredible i thought it worked really well especially in the doctor scene i thought that was probably the most effective yeah exactly uh and then at at the end, he has his mom drive him to the graveyard where he has carved himself a tombstone and dug a very shallow grave, and he crawls into it and starts just, like, 
cover trying to cover himself with dirt like as he's falling right. apart. <laughs> I I love that that little uh thing that they put in showing that he he, he had carved his uh date into that gravestone cuz uh they don't explain a lot about why he came back. I mean, we get we have the mother you know pleading for him to come back in his room. But that it's almost like he doesn't even want to be alive anymore. That he 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 doesn't want to like just die immediately. He's not trying to kill himself. But that it's 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 almost this torture for him too. To as he mentions to the doctor, how he doesn't have to eat or sleep or do anything like that anymore. And yeah, because so, he has no natural bodily functions. Right, he's just, he's sort, just of sort of like a moving of, husk. That, right, uh, he's living in this state of limbo where he's like instinctually driven to kill right. and preserve himself, but the the remaining intelligence that he has knows that that is not any sort of existence. <laughs> yeah. So he's expecting his own death, and it makes you wonder if... The reason he makes such a big scene at the drive-in, killing all of these people, is like, now I have to die. You know, like get, <laughs> just to go out with a bang. Yeah, go out with a bang. And I, I think that's that's great. That last scene of him crawling into his grave and just trying to cover himself with dirt. And uh, then we get that last shot of when the cops pull up and his mom is like kneeling by the grave and she's like, Andy came home. And then it just like pans up into the trees. Yeah, very that was a, a yeah. great ending. Just uh, unsettling and doesn't leave you feeling like anyone, any of these characters are are, are going to be any better off. This is all just—it's <laughs> been a very bad time for them. Well, yeah, and I mean that's that's really true to to the the themes of the monkey's paw. Like, you be careful what you wish for because it might come back to bite you. You know. It, you might get your wish, but not in the way that you want. Right. <laughs> in a way that makes everything much worse, you know. Yeah, uh, overall, though, just a, a another great uh, surprise film that we got to see from this era. Just knowing that this was the same year Texas Chainsaw and uh, Black Christmas came out. Yeah, I know fuck, Texas this Chainsaw was a, much bigger. This was a great year for Bob Clark. Like, right. <laughs> two, two absolutely phenomenal horror movies in one year, like, within a few, released within a few months of each other. Yeah, and it, it shows that there was more experimenting with the genre than, um, than, than I ever gave them. Um, 74 credit credit on that uh, you have so many more weirder things that were being made like that arrival and annihilation seem so incredibly unique and awesome um, and they are but that these sort of ideas have been explored and in, in a movie as, as old as this uh, as old as like phase four right and uh, it's um, I mean it's it's a, been a it's great- it's really interesting to sort of get a little taste of like what some of the fears were in the early 70s like what what the zeitgeist was like you know it is so so shortly post vietnam still in the cold war you know starting to take our first steps into space and stuff like that and wondering about like threats from beyond yeah. that's sort of what we're getting with in phase 4 and then like the damage of vietnam that we're getting in uh death dream and then the like the sexual liberation and fear of of communism and marxism that we're sort of getting in blood for dracula like it's uh i i would definitely 
like to do an episode like this in the future where we pick a year and just pull some movies again. Yeah, I, I, agree. I think this is. I, I think th- we get some really unique stuff. Yeah, and and just being able to get such uh, a different collection of films like all all three of these movies are totally different oh yeah but to still be able to look at them as a whole and see like what are some things that people were afraid of in 1974 and so yeah i'm very happy we did this uh do we want to rate death dream yeah yes. um i'll start it off uh just like black christmas it is it hits on a deeper psychological level than I, I would have expected that it, it it explores more of the mental state of these characters, which I think is always always great. As I mentioned, I think in that Black Christmas episode that great horror is usually psychological or it plays with your mind in some yeah. way and just um, it, it changes the way you feel or that you understand these characters because you've you, you've gotten to see that change. I, I love that it didn't have that moment in act two where they run into the mystic old man who explains everything and how to stop it. It just sort of is, is it's chaos and pain that ends in tragedy for them to never be the same and for the family dynamic to be torn apart. So I'm going to give it a four and a half. I, I highly recommend this just this and black Christmas or like just uh, some, some great horror movies that should be seen. Yeah, I I really I agree with everything you just said. Um I I love that they don't delve too much into explanation and that they just uh let it exist. Uh, I think that's a very mature approach to a movie like this. Um I would not be surprised at all if uh Jacob's Ladder uh owes some some of its things to this movie. Because uh, they remind me of each other in certain ways. Uh, Jacob's Ladder is a great film. If you haven't seen that, check it out. I will say the one thing that we didn't talk about that I did find extremely frustrating about this movie is whoever they had on camera op uh, could oh, not yes. pull focus no, I... to save their fucking life. <laughs> I forgot They're about so... that. <laughs> I, well, I know because it's such a good movie that in the grand scheme of things, it really ends up being rather minor, but there's so many scenes where like the background is in perfect focus, but the actors are just slightly out of focus. So whoever they had on that fucking camera, I, I sure hope that later in life they got better at pulling focus because <laughs> there's one scene in the car at one point where there's a there's a rack focus from the front seat to the back seat and you can see that they hit that focus for a split second and then go past it and make it out of focus again and that was so fucking annoying to me but i don't want to end that on i don't want to end talking about this movie on a bad note really fucking good bob clark is uh, an underrated fucking horror filmmaker in my opinion to have this and black christmas so close together two horror movies that uh, i just think are absolutely fantastic i'm also going to give this a four and a half out of five it's a really really good movie that is exploring some much bigger ideas and takes a really interesting approach to uh, like a zombie film. I feel the same way about a lot of the stuff you guys were saying. I we should emphasize this movie is under an hour and a half. It's a super short movie. It doesn't overstay its welcome at all. At all, it's excellently paced. More than anything, I was impressed by the acting, and I thought Richard Backus 
plays Andy was incredible. His his vacant stare, his seething anger just seeped through every frame with him in it. I also thought the parents were incredible in it. Um, maybe that's just because Faces is so near and dear to my heart, but they both did a great job. Um, and they do the zombie monster thing in such a unique original way that I've never seen before. They take this post-Vietnam anxiety and, you know, mesh it with this monkey's paw fable. Such a unique interpretation of the horrors of, you know, loss and war and post-war stress that I think is really unique and interesting. I Honestly, I think this is a nearly perfect film. The only minor thing would be the the focus stuff yeah. that you were talking about. Honestly, I would give this a 5 out of 5. I think this is an excellent movie and definitely worth checking out. All right. Well, that will give Death Dream, aka Dead of Night, an average rating of 4.6 out of 5 pods. So, We don't have a game this week, but we do have uh, some news that we should probably address. Um, This will likely be our final full-length episode all recording in the same room, at least for a while. At the end of this month, Ben and I are moving to North Carolina to uh, do some work with LightArc Studios and get our uh, game up and running and kickstarted and i'm and moving back to new york because i've i've gotten in trouble so i need to flee the state um, before the wisconsin police get a hold of you right and i don't know how much i can really talk about it because i don't know all the details about like what it means to be charged with attempted arson so it's you know it's whatever i didn't know the daycare was full well, that's, that's that's really all it. It's sad. We're all going to be. Uh, I mean, having a hook from... for a hand really shouldn't be a crime. <laughs> no, it shouldn't. People look at me funny. Well, fortunately, the good news is this is not the end of the show. We are going to keep doing this. Uh, we'll be recording from our own uh, separate places and still bringing you those episodes. But uh, the next few weeks will probably be uh, just mini pods because obviously we have a lot of stuff to to get sorted in in uh, our respective moves, and we won't have as much time to record and work on the show as we as we have in the past. So we're we're working on putting together uh, a few weeks of mini episodes backlog that will uh, hold you over until we're able to uh, put together another full length episode uh, once we're settled in our respective states. So fear not, the show will go on. Uh, It's definitely something that we want to keep doing because we enjoy bringing you these episodes. So for the next few weeks, uh, look for some some mini reviews. Uh, We'll have stuff like Get Out and uh, Piranha 3D and some really fun things that we're going to talk in a going to be talking about hopefully getting uh, a, a guest on for one or two of those before we uh, before we leave the state. 
So thank you, as always, for listening. If you like the show, you can uh, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, at PodPeoplePod. Send us those tasty emails, PodPeoplePod at gmail.com. Fill up our bellies with your thoughts and, and questions. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. The show is produced and scored by Ben and edited by me. Do you guys have anything that you would like to plug before we sign off? Follow me on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. Read uh, some dank memes. The dankest. Eugene? Uh, I've just uh, recently been sponsored by Amazon to uh, start playing Fortnite streaming, and uh, I'm going to be the best. So uh, right now I am at zero wins. <laughs> I've put in about 10 hours, and um, I'm, I'm banking on it. I need to get that prime money, so... If um, if you want to check me out on my streams, um, it's it's Fortnite all Fortnite. Uh, so <laughs> just uh, just keep an eye out, please. So that's it for me. Shout out Bezos. <laughs> yeah, shout out Bezos. Thank you. Thanks I don't know. for that good iguana eating money. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets, and I am Eugene Lundin. And don't have the death dream. Or, <laughs> I, I don't know. Don't cover yourself in honey and feed yourself to ants. <laughs> I know I was suggesting that earlier, but it's bad. <laughs>